you've probably heard a stat that 72% of buyers would prefer a rep-free buying experience. And I always thought that that stat was kind of interesting. And one of the guests today, Hang Black, she is the VP of Revenue Enablement at Zoom Info. She's got a different take that I'm going to share with you in just a second. But before we get to that, my name is Jason Bay. You're listening to Outbound Squad. Most people call me Jay Bay. I'm on a mission to help you turn complete strangers into paying customers. So if you're an SDR doing a bunch of prospecting with ambitions to become an account executive, or you're an AE that's doing a lot of prospecting and closing and all that kind of good stuff, you're definitely in the right place. So Hang's take on this is that not that buyers prefer a rep-free experience, it's that buyers prefer an experience where they can speak asynchronously to the sales rep. In other words, what they don't want to have to do is hop on a bunch of calls and only communicate during the times that they have the calls. Because best case scenario, you're meeting with a buyer on a Tuesday and then you do the second meeting the next day, right? Or the Thursday. It doesn't always work out like that. Oftentimes there are weeks in between calls and that just moves way too slowly. So I really like her take. And that's what we're going to talk about today with the art and science of sales enablement. This is an audio excerpt from a webinar that we recently did. And I think there's a couple things in that stat that are really important. There's this need really to be able to communicate asynchronously on digital channels like text, email. I have a lot of prospects that want to, you know, communicate through LinkedIn DMs, you know, that sort of stuff. And that's really the future of how people are going to buy. And one of the things that's super important is that we understand from an enablement perspective, that's what we need to enable reps on. So what we're going to talk about with both Hang and Doug Hutton, who is the EVP of customer experience at Corporate Visions. This is a guy that has literally led hundreds, I think a thousand plus actually, um, engagements with clients. And we're just going to talk about what's going on in sales enablement right now. So how to cater to specific learning and styles, how the buying landscape has changed, how to make training stick with reps. There's a take that they both have that I think is really interesting too on doing less with less. So having less, fewer tools in the state, in the sales uh, tech stack instead of more tools. And that's a trend really that you're seeing with zoom info, right? Is how can we can combine and consolidate so that we don't have a separate tool doing our call recording doing our revenue intelligence, where we take our notes, where we present, all of that kind of stuff. How do we reduce the number of tools just to make it easier to use? And one of the pro tips that they give too, that we'll talk about a little bit is really living a day in the life of your reps. And one of the things that I really appreciate about Hank's approach, I mean, she's in enablement and she spent a day cold calling as an SDR and set meetings just to live and sit in the seat of an SDR, which I thought was super cool. Um, so this is going to be a good one. If you're an enablement, a sales leader, or if you're a sales rep wanting to understand kind of where enablement is going and, and your participation in that, you're definitely going to like this. So without further ado, let's get to the episode. We got a lot to talk about with these two. So, um, Again, a lot of what we're going to focus on today is the art and science of sales enablement. So we have a, a last minute special guest that I'll introduce to you real quick, uh, Doug Hutton. He's the EVP of customer experience at Corporate Visions. Doug, it's great to have you here. We'll have you give kind of a quick intro on yourself here in a little bit. Uh, and then Hang Black, VP of revenue enablement and sales tech evangelist at uh, 
Zoom info. So it's uh, it's good to have you two on board. You guys, uh, guys ready to dig in? Absolutely. Ready to go. Here we go. Okay, so a couple things as we're going through this. Um, what would really help us customize the content for you today is uh, in the chat, do you mind dropping in what your role is? So are you in sales enablement? Are you in ops? Are you a sales leader? Are you a rep? Go ahead and let us know in the chat. Who are you? What's your role? That'll help us uh, coordinate and customize the content a bit. Yeah, this is sort of what I expected. So lots of enablement, sales leaders. Oh, that's a cool one. Robert is a college professor, a professor, excuse me, teaching sales. Hiya, Robert. Dr. Peterson in the house. Mm-hmm. Got a VP of sales. Very cool. So um, what I figured that we would start with real quick, just to give everyone some context. And as you have questions, feel free. We got the Q&A button at Zoom. Drop it in there or drop your questions into the chat. Um, I'll go ahead and just kind of kick this one uh, your way, Hank, first. Uh, you want to give just some quick background. How do you you and Doug know each other? What's the relationship with Zoom Info and corporate visions? And we'll use that as a starting point here. Um, I am a big believer of uh, testing my vendors and making sure that they go through RFP as often as I can make them go through. Um <laughs> Corporate Visions has had the uh, fortune and misfortune of working with me twice at this point. So I've used them at a at a previous company, love them so much for all of their memorable messaging. Um, I learned certainly a lot about um, how you market and converse with your customers differently based on the situation. And now we're bringing them in for sales coaching. So I'm really excited about um, partnering with them for a second time. Awesome. awesome. Uh, and we th- and we thank you for that hanging and and in reverse here at here at Corporate Visions we share a ton of customers both between Zoom Info and Corporate Visions. We've been a Zoom Info customer uh, for quite some time just because of the the ease of the connection between all of the great buyer information that Zoom Info provides, the tech behind it is just so necessary for sellers to be highly relevant in front of the customer today in those customer conversations that Hang is talking about. So it's been uh, it's been a great pleasure to work with Hang personally before uh, and about to do so again. And you want to give a quick, maybe 20, 30 second snippet on what does corporate visions do? What do you guys do there? Sure. So we specialize in revenue growth services. We help uh, large enterprises grow their revenue, um, whether that's across marketing, sales, customer success. But as you heard Hang say, it comes down to the customer conversation that you're having, um, how that's supported by technology, how that's supported by enablement, how it's supported by all the folks on the call here today. Um, but we have the the insights, the services, the technologies to help companies of all shapes and sizes grow their revenue. And uh, one of the ways I found out about Corporate Visions, you guys did a really cool, you just have a lot of really interesting data that there isn't a lot of, you know, around like video you guys put around like how people read emails and you had like a heat map and how they skim them and read them. You guys do a lot of really cool stuff like that. Um Okay, so let's kind of dig in. I think the first area that would be really interesting to talk about is how the buying landscape has changed. And a lot has happened in the last two or three years. I think a lot of that's spearheaded by by COVID, of course. But uh, hang, I'll kick this first question uh, your way. What's different about selling right now versus maybe pre-COVID or even almost like 12 months ago prior to a lot of the economic uncertainty and all that kind of stuff that's going on right now? 
Um, thanks for asking. You know, um, the adage, the only thing constant is change. Well, I think uh, COVID gave change a, 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 a swift kick in the butt, right? As far as um, accelerating the change that was going to happen anyway. So what we saw a couple of years ago was uh, the, the beginning of the COVID fundamentally changed how we interact and play. So I think it's less about selling has changed so much as buying has changed. And now sellers have to adapt to the way buyers behave. So after COVID, we had, you know, the great resignation. We had the great reshuffle, which led to quiet quitting and now loud firing. So there's um, there's a swift change in the landscape of the people, the human capital that we have as well. Um, we've got a lot that the that piece of it, we've got a lot more, uh, a lot more differentiated people coming into the market, multi-generational return from um, uh, return from to work from uh, from a retirement or or or, or lapse um, hiring in from from um, from a military, that sort of thing. We're being more creative about the talent we're bringing in. Then we had work from anywhere, which fundamentally changed the digital savviness and the need for digital savviness and the tooling and infrastructure in order to enable us to work, to work remotely from each other effectively. Following that, we have um, we have the uh, multi-generational workforce. So it's the first time, it's a new, unique time in history where we've got four different generations in the market that have wildly different communication preferences and wildly different digital skills. So if you think about this, a lot of our SDRs are new new to career, are younger, and are fans of TikTok and YouTube and those sorts of things. And yet we have them calling into our much more seasoned buyers who are more digital. email, phone, that sort of thing. So, you know, we've really got to be careful about how we message. You know, Doug's team has been, is very good about teaching us about how we, um, how only 10% of what is being delivered is actually absorbed. Um, And then finally, companies care about corporate social responsibility and DEI. So let's look at those macroeconomic trends for a moment. And then think about the digital side of the house, which is 93% of sellers really value a good sales tech stat. And in fact, what's even more surprising is that 92% of sellers will actually ask about what the tech stack is as a part of consideration for their job. So as you know, the hardest part of selling at the moment is more activity, more activity, more activity. Maybe it's less about more, more, it's maybe less about activity and efficiency, as Dr. Dover would say, and it's more about effectiveness. Again, with Zoom Zoom Info, for instance, do you want to go with a competitor that will give you a lot more leads that are incorrect and have your people calling the into the wrong people at the wrong time um, with the wrong um, information and data? Or do you want to have fewer, better leads and more valuable and rich conversations? So that was a mouthful, and I'd, I'd love to hear Doug's perspective. Uh, there, there are two things you said that I really attached to, one of which I, I dropped in the chat because I believe it's so important. Some of these buyer changes were already happening before COVID happened. You go back five years, I think what was interesting to us, and I, I imagine Zoom Info saw it as well, five years ago, you had inside sales teams, and you had field sales teams, and you had some hybrids, not a lot. Now, even if you are a quote unquote field seller, you are a digital seller right now, regardless of whether you're at home, 
in an office, in the field. You must, as a sales professional, navigate a world of digital tools, digital technology, and most importantly, how your buyers are doing those things digitally. So it is those last two points you cited hang around the, the seller desire for a great tech stack and asking about that tech stack as part of their own interview and, and hiring process. It's really heartening to hear those two stats because that tells me that sellers in the main now truly fully understand that regardless of what you call your role as a seller, it is a world of digital selling in reaction to a world of digital buying. And, and so long as the digital buying keeps happening, which it is, it's just going to force sellers to be ever more digitally savvy in how they sell, whether, like you said, that's first call SDR, all the way through to a complex sale with five executives sitting around the table. Okay. So I think it's a good question to prompt the audience with, and then we'll kind of dig into what you just said, Doug. Uh, let us know in the chat. Give us a yes or a no. Are you seeing a trend with your sales team in the past two or three years where buyers seem to be way more educated when they come to the table? They may have already looked into competitive situations or uh, solutions already. They already have a really good idea of the pricing and the packaging. They have a good idea of how to articulate the problem that they're trying to solve. Give us a yes or a no in the chat. I've seen quite a few yeses. So, Doug, let's kick this next question your way. So. You talked about the buying landscape. It's already changing. And Google put out a document. This is like 10 years ago called Zmon. It was Zero Moment of Truth, where they started talking about that stuff too, where like it's different because I don't need to interact with people now to get information. But what are some of the trends that you guys are seeing at Corporate Visions in terms of like what are some of the tangible things that buyers are more educated about now or that have changed that would be really good to know if I'm a seller, I need to incorporate this into how I sell. If I'm an enablement sales leader, I need to incorporate this into how we enable our reps. Yeah, I think it's it's a twofold challenge. It's not just that buyers know more. It's also that buyers in general don't want to be reached. So I think it was like the something like 8 billion spam robocalls last year in the United States alone. There's just a, a, an epidemic of buyer unreachability. But I think what that means is that the time that a seller has with a buyer, whether that's email, phone, text, WhatsApp, you name it, that time has to be as valuable as humanly possible to the buyer sitting on the other side. So if it's truly an SDR first call, what's your message within those first 30 seconds that's going to get you the next 30 seconds? And then what's your message in that next 30 seconds that's going to get you the next minute? And you can architect it down to that amount. And then it gets to a point around differentiation as well. Um, and I know Hang has heard much about this when we worked together previously. But if the time that a seller spends with the buyer needs to be wildly valuable, that also means that you as a seller need to show up differently. You have to have done your homework. You have to have used all the tech at your disposal so that when you show up, you aren't part of a sea of sameness of every other seller or vendor that that buyer has talked to. You must be different. Otherwise, that one shot is going to be your only shot and you get then relegated down to other folks in the organization or potentially out altogether. So it's those two things. It just buyers are more educated, but they're also unreachable. When you do reach them, how do you ensure that you have the right message to stand out from the crowd 
and actually get a differentiated conversation going. Yeah. Our, oh, go ahead, Dan. Go ahead. So um, I see Dr. Peterson's on the call. And one of the things that we've talked about is Gartner's last study shows that there are the number of interactions per per buyer is 66 times. Now, also think about we're flooding the market with SDRs, all somehow reaching our buyers 66 times. Um, and I always tell people, if you try to reach me 66 times, I might reach through the computer and kill you. <laughs> so again, it's like, do we want to be efficient at activities or do we want to be effective at our messaging? So again, even if you're calling someone on the phone, um, and they don't pick up, that's okay. They are still reading your transcripts. And to Doug's point, that first 30, 60 second hook is actually really still very important. And if you follow corporate uh, message, corporate vision's messaging, they have different messaging on whether you're landing, expanding, or protecting an account. Very, very different motions. Um, the other thing is pre-pandemic, 44% of millennials wanted a repless sale. I actually argue that that's a misnomer. I don't think they want repless. They want asynchronous. Let me call you when I'm ready. I'll do all my research up front. I'm super educated. When I do call you, don't treat me like I'm stupid. Um, treat me like a partner and make me feel confident that I am making the right decision. So an analogy that I make all the time is someone goes into the pharmacy and says, I have a headache. Pharmacist presents Bayer, Advil, Tylenol, pick one, right? They are all speaking the truth, what Gartner would say would call sense-making. They're all speaking the truth and that they can solve for the headache. However, a good pharmacist, think sales rep, would say, based on your medical history, the other, um, the other medications you're taking, this is the right one for you. That's the difference between selling and being a good seller. Mm -hmm. And it's where something like Zoom Info, just as a platform, and admittedly, others like it, but where Zoom Info excels is that if that seller wants to engage in, in like you said, Hank, sort of great diagnosis, if you will, it matters wildly if they actually have the right information to begin with. If they are starting from ignorance, or if they don't have the right information about the buyer in front of them, and they've done no research, unfortunately, then that buyer they're going to turn off immediately. And so it, it is about, whether again, whether you're an SDR, field seller, everything in between, before you enter that buyer interaction, assuming that what you are about to do is otherwise interrupting the buyer's day, are you coming prepared? And are you as a seller coming with and having leveraged all the technology available to you so that you can actually have a very productive conversation that is relevant to the buyer right in front of you. That's right. And post-COVID, that number 44% is now at 72%. Oof. However, those people, the, the buyers who actually have a repless sale are the ones with greatest buyer's remorse. So yeah. there is quite an opportunity to right-size this. And if you're not using ChatGPT to help you, you're probably falling behind. You just opened a whole can of worms there. Oh, I know. That <laughs> GPT comment. A um, couple quick comments. Uh, dude, I love the repless versus asynchronous. I haven't heard anyone quite articulate it like that. And just in my own personal 
sales cycles, I have noticed that I do a lot more texting these days between sales calls and a lot more DMs on LinkedIn, depending on their communication preference than I did two or three years ago. So it's a very normal thing now. Um, the piece you said on reducing uncertainty was really interesting. I don't know if either of you two have consumed the latest uh, challenger data in uh, their newest book, Jolt, but it talked about, you know, in sales, we always talk about deals being lost to status quo. Yeah. Right. I are deciding to do nothing. Well, they actually over millions of sales calls in the last couple of years looked at that status quo. And they said about half of the people that uh, don't move forward because of status quo are because they're not sold on fixing the problem. Like we all knew that part. But the other part was the uncertainty of making a bad decision. Mm-hmm. So in other words, there's a lot of vendors out there. We don't want to choose the wrong one. So we're just not going to do anything because all of the options feel really risky. Mm-hmm. So I want to, I think this is a good segue into the first thing I think we should tackle is messaging because you two have talked about it a lot. And Hang, I'll, I'll throw this first question your way because we're starting to get into my wheelhouse of like the work I do with reps on outbound, especially. And I'm curious what you're seeing from an enablement perspective in that a lot of what I saw two or three years ago that worked really well was like very product-centric messaging, basically reaching out to people and saying, our solution does this. Do you have any of those needs? And now what I'm seeing is that, hey, when the economy is not doing so great, that type of stuff doesn't really work well if you don't articulate what buyers care about and the problems that your solution solves for them. So my question is, I'm curious, what role do you feel like in enablement plays and like kind of educating the seller less on product and what you sell and more on like, dude, like here's our buyers, here's what they care about. And oh, by the way, you've never done their job before, (laughs) you know? So we need you to articulate what they care about and the problems and that sort of stuff. How do you look at enablement and how that kind of fits into the equation of really educating the seller on what the buyer actually cares about? Um, Good question. So I recently came from a company called Juniper, um, which is uh, kind of the underdog to the behemoth known as Cisco Systems. And there used to be a phrase, and I've worked for both. I worked for Cisco for 15 years. There used to be a phrase called, no one ever got fired for for buying Cisco, right? Because it's a tried and true behemoth um, company. Now, products, you know, uh, often underdogs have better products, but it's all about the messaging and the safety of a larger company. So when we're looking at messaging and we're looking at, as Gartner mentioned, um, sense making, and it's, it's about, again, giving the buyer the confidence that the decision that they're leaning towards anyway is the right decision. Or as Doug would, or as Doug is super aware, if you are trying to boot out the incumbent, it's all about, uh, you know, what we had talked about in Challenger before was FOMO, fear of missing out. And what Matt Dixon talks about now in Jolt is fear of messing up. So how do we give them confidence that they can move or stay with your product without messing up? You know, So for instance, one of the things that a lot of SaaS companies are focusing right now is net retention. So you'll see, you know, uh, you'll see, uh, questions where are we using all the licenses? And if we're not, then let's back down on let's back down on the number of licenses we use. The better question for a seller would be around: Are you maximizing the utilization of all the features and functions that you paid for? Because once we get them to make it really, really sticky, 
that's when you actually provide more value. So I would actually come in with a message around, hey, if you're an existing customer, did you know that you have these functions that you don't have access to? And I'd be happy to uh, to um, partner you with a CSM, Doug's Wheelhouse, or partner you, have, uh, you know, happy to introduce you to other customers who have the same use case that where you can kind of form a co-op of big ideas where you can work together to develop the solution. If I was trying to win them over from an incumbent, I would say, did you know that we have these, these extra functions that would solve these problems? Um, so it's less about the product, but it's but it would be about solving problems they don't even know that they are not addressing at the moment. I think you articulated exactly why, Hang. We've we've done the research on why the messaging approach you need to unseat an incumbent is different than the messaging approach when you are the incumbent, because it is. So one of the things we talk about. Uh, here at Corporate Visions is a sort of a cause of that status quo bias. And it's one of my favorite terms, anticipated regret and blame. It is the natural human instinct that if I make a decision that goes wrong, I'm going to get blamed for it. And in this world right now, that could be a pretty large professional decision for a lot of buyers to make a switch or to stay the course. And so when you are a seller, maybe an account manager, customer success manager, even just a sales professional, and you are just simply trying to renew an existing agreement or perhaps expand an existing agreement, you are that safe place. You are that incumbent and you have an advantage as a result, especially in turbulent economic times, just the human nature is to find safety. Um, Daniel Kahneman speaks a bunch about it. Um, his his research is, is great along that line, but it it is a clear indicator that one, it's super hard right now to unseat incumbents for exactly that reason. And it's exactly why if you're an acquisition seller, your message better be really darn good right now and really overcome that anticipated regret and blame in your buyer's mind. If you're a seller who's selling to an install base and trying to get them to renew, goose that net retention number, man, your message should be playing right on that playing right on that. You are in a place of safety. You've done great work. What you've bought isn't killing you yet. Stay right there. And you're going to have a, you're going to have a great result. Um, but it is exactly that sort of, some of those just innate human psychological characteristics that make those two selling messages very different. It's also why you're going to have more success when you as a seller differentiate the message you bring to the type of buyer that's sitting right in front of you. Yeah, and I'm going to be a little provocative here. And Doug, I'd love to I'd love to get your opinion on it. Yeah, and, please. And well, I know. Uh, so I am a uh, reformed uh, engineer and product manager. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I came from engineering, then marketing, and then now into sales. Um, and in marketing, we focus a lot on ICP, ideal customer profile. I would argue that instead of focusing on so many different ICPs, I would focus on champion and economic buyer. Economic buyer cares about the uh, business solving, um, business solutions for the bottom line, whereas the champion cares about make my job suck less each day. Those are the two different things that they care about, right? And on top of that, then I would layer in what corporate corporate visions is so passionate about, which is the messaging is different from are you are you landing, expanding, or protecting? 
And I would just forget all the other ICPs. I would, I, that's my personal opinion because otherwise there starts to be so much complexity, but I'd love to get your opinions as well. So interestingly, we've in this, this is actually something that can make for all of you enablement professionals on the webinar. This is something that can make your job easier. Um, we've actually done some research around personas, whether you call them economic buyers, champions, whatever terms you use, but also different personas like CFO versus CIO versus CTO, what have you. Our research has actually found exactly what Hank just said, that as soon as you get beyond a certain point, personas actually let you down because it just it's too much complexity. Right. If you're an enablement professional on the call and you've got to provide great collateral, great messaging, et cetera, out to your field teams, can you imagine the moment a seller is like trying to dive in between your five by three by 10 matrix of like, well, I'm talking to an acquisition customer, CFO champion. What five paragraphs do I need for that versus this? And it just gets too complex for everybody. Right. Like too much messaging for enablement to deliver, frankly. Too much messaging for the seller, him or herself, to sort through. Um, and so I, I, I'm fully on board because our, our research has shown it as well. You dive too deep down that persona rabbit hole and it just becomes an explosion of content that no one ends up using. So if you go with that sort of that land expand protect type moniker or acquisition retention expansion, pick your terms. Um, and then from their messaging to that sort of messaging to how their status quo bias is, just a wildly easier thing for enablement to do and a wildly easier thing for sellers to execute when they're actually in front of a buyer. Yep. This is one of the first exercises I do when I work with a new client is I force them to pick two personas and I force them to reduce the amount of verticals they're reaching out to. Also, Love that. Love that. And uh, I think this is a really good exercise for enablement, any sales leaders to like, dude, look at closed one data from the last six months. And I bet you're going to see patterns in like I'm working with a client right now and it's, you know, SaaS is one of the most impacted industries right now. And that used to be number one for them. And they're moving away from that and into healthcare. And there's a couple other verticals, but being able to come to your reps and say 80% of our pipeline right now is coming from these two personas and these two or three verticals. Let's go all in on these. It's a very powerful exercise. And uh, yeah, especially a younger rep that's new at the company. I, I couldn't imagine having to know what six different personas care about. And then all the industry nuances across a dozen different verticals is it's, it's too much. Um, and remember portfolios are complex too, right? So portfolio may not just have one product. A portfolio very likely has five to six products. So then multiply that times XXS, right? Yeah. So instead of, um, you know, we talk about that, we've talked about this recently at Zoom Info, instead of talking about um, let's develop these talk tracks for, you know, follow these routes, use these talk tracks, depending on vertical and ICP, et cetera, et cetera. Instead of that, like, what if we, what if we share insights instead, right? Which is where, hey, here are the building blocks. Here are the three or four bullet points you should know and then tailor those. And that's where ChatGPT is actually very interesting because you can input a use case and kind of um, as long as there's, you, you can use a sales cadence tool to have sort of a framework of messaging and then still tailor to tailor the messaging specific to the customer. Um, and one of the things, and again, bringing this back to the revenue tech stack, one of the things that really helps with this is call intelligence, right? So you don't have million, you don't have um, sales leaders spending uh, hundreds of hours 
monitoring calls. You can have um, AI monitor and, and, and figure out, you know, um, word bubbles according to uh, close one deals as well. And I was, I was going to go right there, Hang. It's You have both sides of that. You have sort of your, um, your cadence plays. But one of the cool things about the call intelligence, conversation intelligence play, is that then you can quickly see, Jason, to your point of, hey, we want to go after these three verticals, these couple personas with this messaging. The call intelligence is going to tell you pretty quickly which messaging is actually working to drive your opportunities forward to close faster versus which is not. And it provides you an ability to quickly scale and learn from failure and learn from success on those much more rapidly than you could five years ago. Um, And that ability then to, for enablement, to change on a dime if they need to, or to say, hey, opportunities that use this message at this stage Give us X percent lift. Why aren't you 50 individuals over here using that message more often? And that ability to circle that loop back is tremendously powerful for, again, for enablement to get scale. There's only so many enablement professionals in an organization. And the more that this rev tech stack can help enablement get the right stuff out to the team as quickly as possible, that yields better buyer decision making, like all for it. Let's dig into that a little bit, Doug. So I wanted to ask you because uh, you've delivered a lot of client engagements and participate in that part a lot. And I think one of the benefits of doing that type of stuff is you get to see how a lot of different companies operate. Um, it's very similar to kind of what I go through with my clients where I get to see a lot of different situations. And what I'm curious about is if you just had to, this will be kind of a quick question first. If you had to quickly just guesstimate like what percentage of the sales team, when you go out there and, and work with a team, let's say, what percentage, if you had to guess, actually know what a, their champions and economic buyers and the personas like could actually tell you in a paragraph or two, here's what these people generally care about. And here are some of the problems they have that we solve. Like what percentage of them just roughly do you feel like could could articulate that? Ooh, that's a good question. It's it's probably 50-50, but the more important question yeah. is then could they go execute against it? And that and that's more where I, I feel folks fall down is because if you are, what we see most often in our clients is that oftentimes sellers can indeed articulate who I'm supposed to be going after, types of accounts, the people within those accounts to go after. What we actually see though is then if enablement is not equipping those sellers with consistent messaging, you just get message schizophrenia in the market and different buyers are hearing different things. And they may, again, to the call intelligence side, they may be hearing different things that have wildly varying propensity to move that buyer forward in the sale. So I think it's, it's I think they've got a pretty good grasp on, on who and what, but it's more, can I repeatably consistently have a great differentiated conversation with that individual when I get in front of them. Well, let's talk about that piece then. So where you're coming from, if I'm understanding correctly, is that it's the problem is not that reps don't know what to say. It's that they don't know how to execute it. Yeah. It, sometimes it isn't that they don't know what to say. Sometimes it is yeah. that, but it's, it's the consistency. It's the repeatability. It's, it's embedding that messaging into the yeah. text. So get, let's just give one example and hang. I'd love your thoughts on this. If you think about a net new prospect who doesn't work with you today, 
their first touch with you may be through your automated cadences. That may be the first touch they ever receive. Maybe the first call they have is with an SDR in your organization after eight touches in that cadence, that call gets recorded. Then let's say that SDR opens up a lead for a field seller. That field seller has a first 30 minute conversation, that call gets recorded and so forth down the line. The key in that chain though is the messaging that's used throughout. By the time that gets to a field seller to have a great 30 minute discovery call of what we would call sort of a wide change conversation, is that message at all related and in sync with that first cadence touch? And is it at all in sync with then what the SDR has said? And then is it at all in sync with the ROI case you're going to build later on? That's actually the tough part. So that's what I mean by they don't do it consistently and repeatedly yeah. because when the when that field seller gets on the phone, again, having hopefully done their homework, use Zoom Info, use LinkedIn, used others, are they actually saying something consistent that makes sense with all of the other touches that that prospect has received to that point? But Hang's lived this world more so on the tech side than I have. So I'd, I'd love your take on that, Hang. Yeah. So if we were to reduce it down to 66 touches, <laughs> let's say we go back to the traditional ideal that actually um, progresses uh, successfully through. Most likely you're going to have five or six successful touches between pre-sales, um, in-pipe, post-sales. And ideally, the situation is the SDR has the same value messaging framework um, consistently as everybody else. So they pass that on to the um, to the AE who says, hey, I hear that this is the value message you care about. This is the problem you're trying to solve. These are the capabilities you're looking for. This is how we solve it differently. So the how we solve it differently doesn't come until later. And the thing is, I always encourage people, do your research and make a guess. And even if you're wrong, guess what's going to happen? Customer's going to do what? Probably correct you. They're going to correct you and then you get the right message out of them. And then you pass it on from the AE to the partner, to, to the AM, to the solution consultant, over to CSM. So that message can tweak over time, but at least everyone is using the same framework so that um, it's consistent, right? And on their side, they're hearing the same message, whether, you know, we said we know that buying committees are somewhere between 11 and 27 people depending on the research you read or in the complexity of the portfolio. But on the other side, hopefully if the CFO is talking to the champion, talking to the economic buyer, they're all speaking the same language because they're also hearing the same things from the, from the sellers. Yeah. This is an interesting, I mean, we could do a whole webinar on messaging. I, uh, I find that in working with sales teams that are, They're able to articulate what their product does. They are not able to articulate like what how it helps the CFO do their job better, though. That because they haven't done the person's job. That's like a whole, that's a whole, you know, we can go, we could spend a lot of time on that. So what I'm hearing from you though is that at, enablement's job here in this equation is like we need to equip them with the right things to say. Right, regardless of their level of acumen and understanding, we need to make sure that they have good stuff that's populated in our cadencing tools. So we need to have good email templates in this case. We need to have good talk tracks. We need to have good talk points, decks for discovery, that sort of stuff. We need to be able to, to provide that part. I would say we need to provide them with good frameworks of what to mm -hmm. say versus 
detailing exactly what to say. So if we give them good frameworks of if you're talking to a a fintech vertical, these are going to be their, you know, very use case oriented. These are going to be the typical things that they're going to care about. These are the typical capabilities they're going to care about. I would prefer to to share with the uh, with the field reps bullet points versus talk tracks. Because then you're better able to tailor it, right? So if you look at enablement, oftentimes what leaders um, outside of sales will ask enablement to do is deliver talk tracks for me. I want everybody to say this verbatim versus, um, and so you're doing a lot of little micro enablement at the, uh, if you if you think about Bloom's taxonomy of learning, you do a lot at the micro layer of remember and understand. That's just at an awareness level. You move up the stack of cognitive uh, load. And so you get to um, competency where they can analyze and evaluate what needs to be said. At mastery, especially if it's a complex portfolio, that's where they can actually create their own messaging. So the higher up the stack we go with frameworks versus individual talk tracks, the more successful I think we'll be at having our our teams uh ironically be more consistent than if we just did talk tracks I, i'd agree with that i think we could we call that the equipping your reps to be situationally fluent and and there's no way that they're going to get to that full situational fluency if everything is super prescriptive along the way i love your bullet point in fact we just within the last six months in the messaging work that we do with customers we move from more of a prose based script to a more bullet point based Here's your starter, because every conversation is different. Even even this webinar, like it's not going exactly with the same talk track as we said an hour ago, but it's still great conversation because we're in the moment situationally listening and talking. And so I think to do that with sales teams, I fully agree, Hang, with the, the equipping to make sure the messaging is consistent, but give the seller the freedom to be situationally relevant in the moment they're in with their buyer. Love it. Yeah. So we've talked about buying landscape messaging. Let's get into you guys kind of you two cheated it up pretty good. The learning and retention of information piece um, as part of the equation. Um, so hang, I'll kick this question your way first. Um, what are some of the important elements, just fundamentally, of whenever we teach something or have reps do something, like making sure that they actually retain that information is always the the challenge <laughs> in my experience working with a sales team. It's, it's, there's like, I'm always surprised. I'm like, there's actually a lot of good stuff that you guys have, but no one seems to use it, <laughs> whether due to lack of buy-in or lack of retention of that information and whatnot, but high level, what are some of the maybe principles and things that we should take in consideration or stats that we might need to know when it comes to just how reps learn most effectively? Um, so I'm really into cognitive science. So I look at, you know, I depend on researchers to, to teach me how to be, uh, to teach me how to be better. Right. Um, a lot of times the first question I'll ask, uh, leadership when I come into a company is, do you believe enablement equals training? And I remember I did this uh, on stage with 3000 people, 90% raised their hands. And by the time I was done with them an hour later, I asked, does enablement equal training? And it's like 0% because it's more than that. It's, it's not enablement should be, we need to look at it from a lens of equipping, empowering, and inspiring. 
So let's take a real life use case. So Doug, you and I talked about moving from prose style to bullet style. Maybe that's my engineering background. I just prefer it's easier. But imagine if you had three bullet points and you insert it into chat GPT, right? With the context of I'm selling to this customer in this vertical and I want to highlight these three things. See what chat GPT uh, puts out. And then you actually go in and tailor it with your own human messaging. You're augmenting the seller. So in that way, we're actually, you know, empowering our sellers to be unique and relevant. And then finally, the last part is inspiring. You cannot make people learn. Can't make me, don't want to, can't make me, right? However, if you inspire them with, hey, here's some key critical tools that is kind of fun, um, then then, then we're make, able to make it stickier. Now, in a realistic kind of way, um, what enablement can do on a metrics uh, viewpoint is looking at adoption, looking at call intelligence, looking at badging, looking at adoption of the actual practice. I know revenue leaders and C-suite leaders want to measure enablement directly tied to ACV or ARR. Um, if you look at Gartner, Forrester, all the analysts say those are all lagging indicators and they're correlative, not causative. What we actually can measure is behavior change and adoption. Does that make sense? Okay. Doug, you see a lot of head nodding. Uh, yes, do all those things. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, the the ones one thing I'll say is the best way to ensure that enablement is not simply learning and training is to ensure that any of the content and skills and messaging that you want your teams to be using is available at the point of need in the technology you have. If it's not there, it's not going to be readily recalled for all the reasons that Hang just said. You could formally train for hours on end. You could prove proficiency at the end of that training event. But if that thing can't be recalled in the moment and available to the individual in the moment it is needed, it's useless. Um, I, a few years back, I, uh, I tried my hand, well, tried my hand. I tried to get to my private pilot's license pre-COVID. And when you're learning how to fly a plane, there is a lot of formal training. But when you're up in the sky, they, uh, one of the three word phrases that your flight instructor will tell you is aviate, navigate, communicate in that order. Because mm -hmm. when an emergency happens, and it does, sometimes the pilots actually forget to fly the plane and get so consumed by the problem at hand that they forget to aviate first. Mm -hmm. And sadly, that's often what we do with sellers is that we give them all the formal training, we give them all the stuff, then we say, go do it. And then in a tough situation with a buyer in a tough moment, they, they fail to aviate, if you will. They fail to actually take all that because it's not available right at their disposal when they need it, situationally relevant. Um, and so 100% to everything Hank said on, on that ability there. So this is another one of those topics you could spend an entire hour on, just how people learn and that kind of stuff. And, and uh, you do have a lot of experience with this. So it's, it's, it's fun to pick your brains. Um, let's, if we were to look at this from a new rep onboarding perspective, let's take that as an example. What are some, uh, Doug, I'll kick this first question your way. Um, what, how could we incorporate some of these principles into how we onboard? Because one of the 
things that it's a you know common complaint from many many reps is is the just insane amount of information that they must consume yeah. during rep onboarding and how much of it doesn't relate to anything really that they're going to be doing in the first 90 days. Yeah. Um, so from a learning standpoint, do you have any recommendations or things to avoid when it comes to, hey, we we have a new batch of reps coming on board. What's the most effective way to get them up to speed? Yeah. I would say let's just all agree. I think the three of us could probably agree that even if we architect the best onboarding experience, there's going to be some drinking from the fire hose and just some content basics that a new seller has to consume. I think we can agree on that. But that is where, at least from our perspective at, at Corporate Visions, and I think I think Hang and, and the folks at Zoom Info would agree, that frontline sales manager is so critical to that new seller's onboarding. Everything that we were just talking about, situationally relevant content in technology, et cetera, that applies to onboarding too, so that a new seller can find the right thing at the right time, the first time they need it. But for that, we've done some research on this, but that frontline sales manager is the linchpin of the success or failure of that new hire's experience. Are they getting the right coaching at the right cadence? Is that frontline sales manager really being a value-added resource to that new hire? Um, are they getting the right coaching through their first few attempts at calls and going through the necessary call intelligence? Are they doing the right homework? But from our perspective, the linchpin of the frontline sales manager and onboarding like cannot be overstated. But hang, I'd love your love your perspective on that. Um, I I agree. You know, if I had one enablement person only, I would have an onboarding person. Ooh. If I had a second one, I would have a sales leader, uh, leadership <laughs> person. If I, you know, if I only had two, because those, the, the first one gets you quicker to ramp. The second one gets you to, um, gets you to be a force multiplier because there is some, in some situations, enablement is expected to do all of the all of the enablement, where in the real, where reality is day to day, the managers touch their people much more often. The managers should be there more coaching than closing deals, and that's kind of where we see a lot of the discrepancy. But the manager should be there, like enforcing discipline. Um, um, and so, you know, someone had asked in the chat, if there are three things that you want reps to do and do well. I would say, call and meeting prep. Messaging discipline, forecast discipline. It's all discipline, 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 and framework. And the only person that can keep them accountable is not enablement. It's their it's their managers, right? Um, so that's kind of why it, that function is so super important. And that's why we're bringing in um, at Zoom Info, we're bringing in corporate visions to help us with that. I you love know. the call. I love the call prep side. That is, I think, that's a often missed, often missed um, in there. Because it is the one thing that you have to tailor a little bit from client to client. You can have good message discipline from client to client if you know you're calling on similar folks. But the prep of really understanding the differences between companies, contacts, buyers, like that's that is too often missed. And it's it's a shame. Yeah. Let's double click on the frontline leaders for a second because uh just being a, a, a trainer, you know, sales coach and trainer and consultant, this is something that uh you know, I think the stats, you know, sales, tr people that purchase training, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And like 98% of it is spent on reps. <laughs> There's very little enablement that happens for leaders. And uh, I'll kick this question your way, Hang. Um, 
if someone's watching this or listening to this right now, and they don't really have an enablement practice set up for the frontline leaders, how do you suggest someone like that gets started? What are maybe the first kind of ways that they could get started with something like that? Because it's uh, almost zero. I don't know what your guys' experience is. I hardly see any enablement for frontline leaders. And you made such a good point earlier about it. What's funny is if you look at um, what is important to an organization, they will all say sales leadership development, frontline leadership development. Guess what's the last thing to get funded? Every single company without fail, right? Because we got to enable on the product. We got to enable per role. We've got to do like all these other enablements. The very, very last thing to get funded is always first line managers, always. Now, it's important because, again, when we talk about layers of cognition, a lot of enablement, again, when when an, when a request is made, everybody assumes, I want a one-hour webinar. Doesn't matter if it's at the remember, understand level, the mastery level. Everybody wants their one piece of thing, their one thing to be, to be on a live one-hour webinar. Some things you can put in a Slack message, to be honest. Some things you can put on a 10-minute on-demand. Um, so for me, the, the reason the first line managers are really important is to make enablement sticky. You need that reinforcement It's a multi-week process, right? At the mastery level, awareness, send an email to Slack competency. It might be like one, one hour webinar or two. If it's, um, if it's more than that, if you want true mastery, it's multiple sessions with reinforcements from the managers, with manager coaching, with manager grading. And in fact, whenever we're doing badging, the manager should go first in that they get, they have to do the exercise, they get graded so they understand how the rubric works. And then they, um, you know, they proliferate down. But that's why they're so key and critical to making adoption sticky. Just one uh, one suggestion for the for the audience outside of our two companies. Um, if you check out some of the data uh, that a company called Commercial Tribe has published, um, they've published some great data on manager time spend. Um, I did a webinar with them last year, but there was one stat from that study that stood out to me, Hang, and it proves your point almost almost perfectly. Like you said, frontline sales manager for onboarding is fantastic. But where poor managers spend too much of their time is on low-performing tenured reps. Literally, it's, it's the exact opposite of what we all know great managers should be doing, which is ramping up great new hires, moving the performance curve to the right. But unfortunately, without the enablement that Hang just talked about, too many managers will orchestrate their time toward trying to save bad tenured reps. And that is not the best use of their time at all. Uh, and so if you pair up Hang's answer with some of the data that Commercial Tribe has come out with, you can actually have a pretty cool formula to how to enable your managers to best spend their time. Yeah. And if you layer on top of that, um, poor managers spend more time managing poor reps. I would also argue that goes up the stack too. Poor directors will spend more time managing <laughs> poor managers, right? Uh, and then SVPs spend more time managing, you know, poor VPs and, and it just proliferates. And if you look at where they spend their time in the deal cycle, a lot of them will spend more time on the back end of the deal. And what happens? Your front end dries up because you haven't been coaching on 
opening and progressing deals. So, you know, that's kind of, that's where really, really good management steps in. Um, I want to circle back for a moment about good onboarding. It is drinking from a fire hose. I actually think really good onboarding incorporates how you navigate the company. Mm. How does how does the product management organization work? Who do, who are my go-to contacts? How does the product marketing organization work? Who are my go-to contacts? Marketing, et cetera. Who are the key stakeholders that they need? Because at the end of the day, if they forget, they at least know who to go to to get their problem solved. I like that. Yeah, love that. A big theme today has been 80-20 rule. Just like really narrowing down like what the most, it's, it's the thing I learned as a first time sales manager too, is that you're going to be really tempted to work with your bottom people because they're struggling the most and making the most noise. But where are your results coming from and how much better would the ROI be on your efforts if you were focusing on on people that were a little more receptive, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, we got a couple of minutes left. Chris re-dropped a question into the Q&A and he asked, uh, any suggestions on where to start? What are the top three behaviors that enablement should be monitoring? It's kind of a loaded question, <laughs> but um, for someone listening or watching that's not really, doesn't have an ongoing consistent enablement practice, what are maybe some of the two or three metrics or things that you guys would uh, suggest that they measure? You first. I Doug put it in the chat, so I'd, I'd love to um, <laughs> to read it. But I look at um, I look at time to first deal. Um, that's pretty significant. Um, I'm kind of I'm going back and looking at for your net new opportunities created. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're talking specifically onboarding, um, just uh, architecting to that net new ops. I love time to first deal as well. Um, but Jason, were you asking more like broadly or specific to the onboarding question? Where should we take our responses there? Chris is wanting to know more broadly. I would also say deal velocity. Mm-hmm. And then for, for managers, I would actually look at attrition. Mm. Because rep attrition is very expensive. Yeah. Because we know that a rep that stays past 12 months in general brings in one to 2x what a first year seller brings in. A rep that stays past 23 months brings in three to 5x a first year seller. So if you lose a seasoned rep and uh, replace them with a brand new rep, you're looking at bridging years of experience, not weeks and months. I'd say the the key thing too, if if you're starting an enablement practice um, or you're just maturing it's about having the key priorities for your enablement practice because the same thing that will happen to a rep of trying to like just find the piece of information, create my own deck, what have you, that happens to enablement. And then it becomes that over enablement, the, the deck for every request, the training for every new product. Yeah. And in an era of smaller resources, perhaps, it's about making sure that you know going through that filter of what do I do, what do I not do? Um, and you said you said it great, Jason. It's it's eighty twenty for enablement as well. Enablement's got to have eyes open on what's going to deliver the biggest results for the business on the on the measures that the business is measured against. Yeah. So what I heard there was time to net new ops is a really good one to look at and assess your onboarding. Mm-hmm. So when people have all kinds of definitions of ramp, whether a rep is fully ramped, and most of the time I see ramped is not when they hit a certain outcome. It's like a certain amount of time and activity, but no measurement of the quality of that activity, um, right. deal velocity. So are we closing deals quicker? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the attrition was a really interesting one, hang to look at uh, manager attrition, because how disruptive is that when you lose a manager? 
it's like those reps. It's just, it's, it's so disruptive for a large sales organization, especially. Um, we're out of time. I would love, uh, Doug, if you could first real quick, where, where do you suggest, and I'll drop this into the chat so people can connect with you on LinkedIn, but where can people go to connect with you, learn more about what you guys are up to? I mean, LinkedIn is great. That's always a great first stop. Um, and certainly any of the stats that I cited today come from research we've done at Corporate Visions. If you drop me a line, I, I will gladly send you the link to to those underlying studies as well. But Hank, thanks so much for the invite today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you uh, so much for joining on such uh, short notice. I just thought that your your company brings so much value to the world um, and you're so forward thinking in how you think about messaging. So thank you for joining us. Appreciate that. No, thank you. Yeah. And where should people go to check out uh, you, Hang? I dropped your LinkedIn profile in there. And of course, go check out Zoom Info, but where can people go to learn more about you? LinkedIn is also uh, the best route for me. And then um, you can also connect with me on Hang with Hang. Awesome. Well, YouTube made my job really easy today, so I appreciate it. And uh, for the rest of you, I appreciate all the engagement, all that stuff. And uh, that's all we got. We'll see you. We'll send out a recording soon. We'll see you, everyone. Have a good one. See you both. Bye.